Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together as your people and gather around your word. We pray your blessings in this time, that you open our minds, that you open our hearts, that you impart to us ancient wisdom. We thank you for the testimony of our brothers Paul and Barnabas. We thank you for their obvious humility and for the lesson that it is to us. I pray that you give your people clarity in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Satan, as you know, is the father of sin. I do not say that he is the creator of sin because sin is not a creation. Sin, rather, is a kind of logic, and logic, obviously, is of God. Christ is, in fact, logic incarnate, per John 1. But sin is broken logic. Ergo, it is a twisted derivative and not an original creation. And this twisted derivation is very clearly seen in the first sin, which was, I will be like the Most High. Now, clearly, the Most High is much too high for any created being to usurp his authority and exceed his power. And so, again, in this absurd aspiration, you see sin's broken logic or its illogicality. But sin is also a species. And as such, it undergoes mutations, which accounts for variations from person to person and people group to people group. But still, there remains fixed parameters for it because it is a species, and these cannot be exceeded. As an example of this, consider us. We are human beings. We are of the human species. And we can and do experience our humanity in disparate and varied ways, but still we cannot become something entirely different or transcend our basic nature. So then, by way of analogy, sin can come in a package that's six foot two with brown hair, broad shoulders, or it can come in a package that's four foot two with blonde hair and a slight frame. But it is still of the kind of sin. And so it will always follow that basic line of the first sin, which is again, I will be like the most high. This is the motivation behind every concerted act of sin that any of us have ever committed. God says, I must live thus, but I don't want to, and so I will live as I like, making myself a God. And it seems much more banal than that in the moment when you are conceiving of and carrying out these sins, whatever they may be, but essentially that is what is happening. Which means that with every sin that we commit, whatever specific command we're violating, we are certainly violating the first and greatest commandment also, and chiefly, in fact, 
And this is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then, of course, because even if we don't worship God, we do inevitably, as a reflection of our natures, worship something, we necessarily violate the second commandment as well. Shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, it is a great mistake and one that's been made by many to conceive of an idol as merely a graven image. Because even if it is actually a graven image that you're worshiping, that thing that's being worshipped by you is ultimately just a means of you worshipping yourself. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it just so happens that every idol that a person may uh, venerate happens to agree entirely with that person. Whatever they desire it promises to supply them with. But the point is that the statue or whatever is really just a middleman. Often, though, we do skip the middleman entirely, and we do this especially in an age of reason, so-called. We are too sophisticated to require those primitive objects in order to make sense of ourselves in our spirituality if, in fact, we even accept the notion that we are spiritual, as often we do not. So then, if, say, Rachel had existed in our day, she'd have been the same kind of idolater. She just wouldn't have bothered to take the idol from her father's house and hide it in her camel's saddle. She would have simply demanded worship for the person sitting on top of the camel, which is herself. We think that we are better than she and those like her. But like most issues of religion and worship, what we think of as modern people as being better is in fact actually worse. At least the ancient peoples and many non-Westerners to this day had and have enough humility to pretend like they are not worshiping themselves directly. At least there is some sense of needing divinity because you're not divine. Even if in order to accomplish this, you ascribe divinity to an object of wood or stone or metal But because we believe that we are inerrantly divine, we, speaking of fallen humanity in general, are very happy to receive and demand all the worship that comes along with that. But then as Christians, we have new natures. And those new natures allow us to worship God. In us, the Father that seeks true worshipers has made them. And we can and do fulfill our blessed obligation to worship the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. And yet, even as new creatures, we carry along with us Paul's dreaded flesh, that body of death. And the flesh is not a nature, as some have identified it. We only have one nature as Christians, and it's a new one. But the flesh is certainly in contradiction to our new natures. And the flesh happens to stink a whole lot like the rotten death that we were raised a new life out of. And so even in the Christian life, this desire to be worshipped persists. But in some ways, it's now actually much harder to identify and root it out because it often gets couched in manipulated Bible verses and biblical precepts. Uh, For example, a husband may see in the Scriptures that his wife ought to respect him. But what he demands from her on that basis is not actually respect. It is veneration, approaching worship, if not just flat-out worship. 
Another example, the wife, mother, she may look at Proverbs 31 and she may say, her children rose up and called her blessed. I aspire to this. I desire this from my children. Is it right for her to desire what is consistent with being a biblical wife and a godly mother? Absolutely. But what she may, in fact, desire, again, is something that goes beyond what is written in the text and something that very much progresses into worship. So we are not immune to this. And as I say, it can become more difficult for us because we easily inoculate ourselves against these truths by our own subtle interpretive errors that we can unwittingly foist into the text as a means of self-justification. But do you know where else this idolatry shows up? And I'm glad you're all sitting down because this is truly shocking. Do you know where this kind of self-adulation rears its ugly head very often? In preachers, in pastors. I know, I know, it's hard. I can give you a second to process that if you need it. But not only does it show up, it shows up the way the drunken frat boy showed up to the dog pound circa Bernie Kosar. And as great of an opportunity, or as great of an opportunity for this has never occurred as will occur in our text, and we will look at this, but also the Spirit of Christ will show up in opposition to it, and we will observe that as well. And through it, I hope that we will learn to oppose the same by the same power, either as those receiving worship or as those giving it, and we'll learn much else from the text as well. Now, by way of preface, and of course I mean more preface because I've already given you quite a bit, last week our study concluded as follows. Acts 14, 3 through 7, they, Paul and Barnabas, spent a long time there, there being Iconium, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands, Now the people of the city were divided and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe in the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So they are going to places, they are preaching the gospel. Lord is blessing, but there is satanic opposition. And so they are forced to move on and forced into new territory. And we are about to press here into new territory in our text, in which we will find the aforementioned lesson on idolatry and much more. So look to Acts 14, starting in verse 8, and by and by we'll get all the way to verse 19, which is as far as we will get, and we will exegete and apply as we go. So Acts 14, 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. I want you to consider the description of this man. Are you getting the impression, maybe, that really it's quite important to Luke that you understand the true extent of this fellow's condition? First, he says that this gentleman had no strength in his feet, so he cannot walk. Next, he says he is lame from his mother's womb, so he's never been able to walk. And then finally, he simply revisits and reiterates that same second point and says, who had never walked. So, uh, can't walk, couldn't walk, and apart from some miracle, is never ever going to be able to walk. Why is he pushing this issue to the extent that he is? Why is it so critical to him that he be clear on the matter that this gentleman 
was totally incapacitated? Well, because he doesn't want to leave room for charlatans to appear as though they have this legitimate ability from the Holy Spirit of God. He wants us to recognize that the Benny Hins of the world are, in fact, liars and false teachers. This is not a situation where somebody has 75% mobility, and maybe they're in a wheelchair, but if you put a gun to their head, they could still get up, though it would cause them quite a bit of pain. And through group psychology and adrenaline, they can get up in the kind of service that he holds in a convention center. And they do, but very much to their detriment. People have done follow-ups with these sorts of individuals in weeks uh, after and found that they were bedridden on account of the way that they exerted themselves because they were, in fact, not healed. And they only harmed themselves more greatly. Justin Peters gives a great explanation of this. People like him, people who are paraplegics or quadriplegics, they are screened out in advance so that only the people with partial mobility who are in that situation may make it up to the stage and can be supposedly healed. Luke here is leaving no room for this. Now look to verse 9. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke. I'll pause here for a moment and understand that the verb there, listening, is rendered in the imperfect tense in the original language, which simply means that this was ongoing for him. It was continuous. So this is not the first time that he has come here to hear Paul speak about Christ and to give the gospel. And in fact, I do believe that he is already a Christian at this point. And I think this based upon what we are soon going to learn about him. Starting again in verse 9, this man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet! And he leaped up and began to walk. Now, question. Is this man's faith enabling the supernatural healing power of God to be released? Does the Lord require this man's faith so that he may act? If this is happening, then this, of course, presupposes that God would always require some sort of permission to be granted by him in order to act in this way. And indeed, this is one of the cardinal claims of fake faith healers in our day, of the kind of Benny Hinn. And they use this to justify themselves in light of their so many failures. And they would simply say, see, it, it wasn't me. It wasn't that I'm illegitimate, that I don't actually have the power to heal in the same way that the apostles and Christ did. It was your fault, poor lame person. You simply did not possess the faith. And if you had, you would be healed. Well, first... Let's establish the fact that legitimate prophets and apostles in the New Testament didn't attempt and fail when it came to these things, when it came to healing. But to prove to you beyond a doubt that God does not require our faith in order to act, let me remind you of the healing of another lame man that was performed through Peter in chapter 3, in verses 1 through 9. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used, used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk! And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. Did that fellow have faith? Did that fellow believe that he was going to be healed, and so he was in response to that? No, that fellow was looking for whatever pocket change he could get out of whomever he could get it from. He didn't expect to be healed. He didn't think that that was even a possibility as far as Peter and John were concerned. So no, God does not ever require faith to heal. We know this because, again, if he did, he would always require it. But he doesn't because the sovereign God of the universe obviously cannot be sovereign if he requires any innate faith or anything at all in order to act in his own creation. But at the same time, clearly this lame man's faith plays a role in this, and we cannot pretend that it doesn't. We shouldn't pretend that it doesn't. So the question is, what is that role? Well, the role of his faith is summed up in and well expressed by Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, being God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, faith's greatest reward is always salvation from sin and sin's eternal consequences. But every one of us who truly believes in the Lord Jesus and has been saved by him, we receive other rewards as well. As a consequence of my faith in the Lord Jesus, that faith which he instilled in me, by the way, by his spirit, I didn't even come to that on my own, but as a reward for that, I have a wonderful marriage. I have a wonderful relationship with my children when they're behaving, which is sometimes. But I have many other blessings. Perhaps exceptional cases, you can have a paraplegic being made well. This is the blessing of the Lord for this man's faith, which was again also given to him as a gift. And this, by the way, is why I believe that this man is already a believer. And I could be wrong about that, by the way. I can't prove it. His faith could be something more spurious or sort of half-formed or just pointed in the direction of physical healing. But it is very possible that this is one of Christ's little lambs who from birth had been malformed or otherwise had inoperative legs, and so the Lord blessed him for his believing. And so you have this profound miracle. And this is not the first time that something like this has occurred in the book of Acts, not nearly. But what usually comes on the heels of an event like this? How about revival, right? The Lord uses this to open people's eyes to their spiritual needs, having met some tremendous physical need in a profound way. Well, that is not what is going to happen this time. This time, something much darker will be born from this. And look to verse 11, and you will see this. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyceonian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer a sacrifice with the crowds. Now, before I get to the spiritual substance of this, I want to give you some historical context to help you make sense of that when we get there. Zeus, as you may know, is the king of the gods. Hermes, as you may or may not know, is Zeus's chief messenger or herald, to which Luke alludes, and even more broadly speaking, 
he acted in this capacity with respect to the gods in general. Now, these characters relate in a special way to Lystra. And Luke makes clear that there's a temple right outside of the city. One of Zeus' priests is present as this miracle is performed. But in fact, to this day, in and around Lystra, there remain ancient inscriptions dedicated to Zeus, to his priests, as well as an altar dedicated to the hearer of prayers, which given the religious context there is believed to also refer to Zeus. Additionally, there is a statue of Hermes in this place. So these people then are primed for some kind of confirmation bias with respect to these two gods in particular. And they get it. And surely the way that they have their bias confirmed says something of the comportment of Paul and Barnabas as well as perhaps their appearance and even their age. In Roman mythology, Zeus was old and stately. Evidently, Barnabas fits that bill. Hermes was young. He was lively. He was always talking. And especially with that third point, that is certainly true of the Apostle Paul. And so they draw that conclusion about him. So that's the history. But what are the spiritual implications? Well, as a Christian minister, you might imagine that I do not like to commend idolaters in any sense whatsoever, but I must break from that here and at least say that these people have pretty high standards relative to those of the idolaters in our day. To start, consider who we, in our sophistication, idolize in contrast to these silly pagan people. Think about Carl Lentz. Are you familiar? Why is Carl Lentz, a false teacher who watched out of one ministry uh, for moral failings and apparently has resurfaced in another, why do people worship him? Well, if you're not familiar with him, they worship him because he has tattoos and skinny jeans. That's it. That's the whole thing, as far as I can tell. Maybe because of this, the women in the congregation... Uh, make some connection to the bad boy that they once brought home to their mothers who they didn't approve of, and so this adds like another layer of attractability or something. But he is undoubtedly worshipped. Let's not pretend, though, that this pastor worship is relegated to those in the big Buddha camp, men like him that are demonstrably absurd. People in our camp have their idols, too. And a lot of these men are, are good men and faithful preachers. They're on the radio. They're on that YouTube station. They have that podcast, and you are quite certain that they are better than your pastor, and they may well be. Or they may not be, because you don't actually know them. But at any rate, they're still just men. And they are, in fact, men whose job it is primarily to ethically plagiarize which is a contradiction in terms and an oxymoron, I know, but that's the best description I can think of to describe what it is that I do and what it is that they do. Now, one of the most ridiculous forms of man worship and woman worship in our society has got to be movie stars. These are not people of importance. These are people whose job it is to pretend to be people who are important, and yet they are worshipped as gods, inarguably and undeniably. But I will say that with them, at least... There is artistry, and you can't deny this. There is such a thing as a brilliant acting performance, but however brilliant a preacher may be, he's not making art. 
He might be more or less artful in his expression, but fundamentally he is taking the material in the Bible and putting it in a prescribed form, taking it from the big book and putting it in a smaller package that is easier to consume for his people in one setting. It may help them. And so this makes men who do what I do every bit as godlike as pharmacists. I once heard a comedian making fun of people with this profession. None of you are pharmacists that I know of, so I uh, won't run into a landmine there, I guess. But he was, you know, doing up the whole thing about them on the platform. Why are they on this elevated platform? And then they are uh, wearing those white coats as though this is something special when we all know that what they do is take the pills from the big bottle and put it in the little bottle. And that was the joke. That's essentially what I do. I take the message from the big book and I put it into littler lessons. That's what we all do. And they are on an elevated platform for apparently no reason. I, though, am on one for a reason. Maybe it's just practical here. But if we do ever have a church, I will build a tower that rivals that which R.C. Sproul used to preach in. My legs will cramp. I will be climbing so many stairs to get to the top of that thing. But that will not be because I am worthy of any kind of veneration. It will be because whatever man occupies that place, it should be understood that the task, the task is sacred. And that's it. The word is supreme. The man could be one of many. Take him out, put someone else in there. It is the same. But nevertheless, all of this escapes many, and they just keep treating their favorite preacher as a celebrity, which, in the way that we use that term celebrity, very often just means God, and is another word for it. But consider also the political sphere. I am frequently shocked by how inarticulate our politicians are. I don't think it used to be this way, and it's not just a certain old octogenarian politician. The young ones, too. Many of them can't string sentences together coherently. They can't speak publicly, which is sort of fundamental to that role. They are often the least impressive people you know of, and yet because of what they promise, we worship, and we don't even require that they as a group at any point really make good on their promises. We still just continue to worship. And sure, we'll move on to a different candidate after a while, a different demigod, but they also won't do what they promise And we'll just keep going and going and going. But now consider what the Lyceonian standard for worship is. What has to happen in order for them to say, this is Zeus and this is Hermes. They take this guy who's never walked ever, whose legs have obviously atrophied and have shriveled to the point where they couldn't sustain his body, even if he did suddenly regain the ability. But all of that has worked out supernaturally. And he gets up. Tell me again how we are more sophisticated than these people were. We have far lower standards. That is all. Now before we move any further forward in the text, consider not only the worshipers as we have been, but consider the ones that they've made gods out of. How often do you see people that are put in this position of being looked at as a god refuse to take that title? Not often, I think. In fact, am I the only one feeling a little bit of deja vu here with respect to the book of Acts? 
I seem to remember an individual of some note standing up in front of a large group of people and them saying something along the lines of, the voice of a god and not of a man. Do you remember that? That was Herod, of course. And uh, he responded very differently, and so God responded very differently to him. As I recall, he was eaten by worms. But it will not be so with Paul and Barnabas. They, in contrast to Herod, treat this kind of worship like an envelope full of anthrax. Consider consider, uh, verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. Now let's pause here for a moment and apply this directly to us. And, And I mean all of us, not just preachers. People are inevitable idolaters. It is like inhaling or exhaling. And so if you are a man or woman of any measurable talent, which really all of you are, then you'll be worshipped in one sphere or another. And this is true irrespective. The sphere, and sadly that includes local churches as well. When this happens, when this is put upon you, this is how you must respond. And it's very subtle forms. It'll sound something like, wow, so-and-so, you're so great at, or you're so gifted in. Now, of course, this doesn't necessarily equal worship. It might just be encouragement. Depends upon the heart of the person. And you respond there by saying, well, praise the Lord, sister or brother, and thank you for your kind words. And that is where you leave it. Or if it is more overt, then you must be more overt as well and say, only God is due what you're putting on me. And it's quite evident that you don't care anything about my soul because you're corrupting it right now or doing the best that you can to do so. But back to verse 15 and continuing on, we learn that acknowledging that every man is only a man is only part of the equation. Verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Do you suppose there that the description of living God might be Paul drawing a distinction that is not readily apparent in a cursory reading just given the context and that it involves Roman mythology indeed? A living God in contrast to dead idols. And it's the same distinction that's drawn by Psalm 115, verses 1 through 9. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The statue of Zeus and Hermes and the altar, none of it matters. They are inanimate objects derived from the imaginations of men. God is alive. Yahweh is living. And what has that living God wrought? according to Paul. Well, everything. He is creator. 
And that is how he is identified here. Uh, during and after COVID, there were and have been a lot of questions about what was the first great lie. It seemed apparent to pretty much everybody that when the government gets to the point where they would tell whoppers of that scale, that probably is not the first time that they have told us. A sort of an untruth. That's uh, the kind of thing you warm up to. And so we all started asking, well, where did this begin? What other things have we been lied about? What was the first great lie? Did it pertain to the medical industrial complex, perhaps? Was it love is love? Was it that the living human being in the womb was neither living nor human? Well, those are all great lies, but they're not the great lie. The great lie which made all of those lies possible and so many others is that science disproved the existence of God and made a creator irrelevant. The great lie in Western civilization is unquestionably Darwinian evolution. It never ceases to amaze me that enormous numbers of people have as the foundation of their worldviews and thus their lives the idea that everything came from nothing. You've never seen anything come from nothing. But you demand that I believe that everything did? Now, truly, that is incredible. But as much as it is, they do believe that. Why do they believe that? Well, they believe it for many reasons. But one of the chief reasons is that they trusted the experts. It is manifestly evident that spontaneous existence has never been observed by anybody. It is manifestly evident that simple-celled organisms exist within a much more complex ecosystem and require that ecosystem for survival. If you would like to be sequestered by me for 45 minutes to an hour and a half, ask a simple question about soil ecology. You're going nowhere for a long time. I'd love to talk to you about that. Everything depends upon the other things as a symbiosis so that no one thing can exist without all of the other things, which means that things cannot develop one at a time. Same is true on a macro level. This is obvious. Anybody who's ever dug in the dirt can tell that this is obvious. So is everybody just stupid? No. They hate the God who is, and so they create a God who is not. And this God for Westerners is chaos. And he has his priests, and they are indeed infallible. So irrespective how irreconcilable their creeds are with observable reality, you must trust that they know what you don't. Or perhaps faith is a better word than trust, even though they essentially mean the same thing. But this then becomes the pattern, henceforth. There's some absurd lie that is raised a priesthood that is set apart to promote these lies. They say things that contradict what everybody observes. It doesn't rain down. The rain starts on the earth and goes up into the heavens. That sort of thing. And it's just assumed that because they have that title expert, which is again akin to priest, that they're picking up something that you're missing. But this is where it started, with a godless, spontaneous combustion that produced every complex system in the universe. But that is not what happened. There is a God. He is our creator. And this could not be more critical to our message. 
How can God save if he did not create? How can he redeem if he never possessed in the first place? Because redemption is to buy back. If it doesn't belong to you at the first, you can't get it back. And that is why with the Jews, God as creator is presupposed in apostolic preaching. And with the Gentiles, God as creator, as we will see moving forward, is the foundation of Paul's preaching. And it must be of ours too. But yes, they will think that we're stupid for believing in creationism. Of course they will. You think they're going to think that you're smart when you tell them about your sexual ethic? When you tell them about the, the role of men and women and the nuclear family? Your views on child rearing? How about the supernatural as a category in general? Now, I would say that with them thinking you're stupid, you could kick the can down the road and nothing more. But actually, if you don't teach creationism, there is no road because God didn't make it. Well, one thing that should also be noted is that Paul has taken the offensive position here instead of the defensive position. In our day, we are always playing defense. Prove to us that there is a creator. Actually, I would like for you to prove to me uh, that everything created itself. I feel like if that's your position, the burden of proof is on you. And how about prove to us the existence of supernaturality? How about you prove to me how natural processes can account for the generation of nature, given that prior to the existence of nature, there was no nature and thus no natural processes to produce it or anything else. My position is consistent with the observation and the experience of all humanity of all time. That's why even pagan peoples believe that there has to be a creator. If you want to take another position, the responsibility is yours. You have the absurd view, not me. And so I'll spend the majority of my time just affirming what is, not defending, again, the fact that rain falls down. Paul leads with this with pagans, and so must we. Paul does not apologize for this, and neither can we. Now, what is Paul's broader point? It is that God is God, and he is not, and Barnabas is not, and Zeus is not, and so Hermes is not a witness to the gods, but the one living God certainly has left himself with a witness, and this is where he goes next. Even absent preachers of the gospel, and this ties into creation, verse 16, and the generations gone by, this would be the generations of their Gentile ancestors, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Now, he does not mean here that they had no accountability. He just means that by the sovereign decree of God, there was little light shed abroad before Christ, little revelation, but that does not mean that there was none. Continuing in verse 17, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he gave and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God is creator, and his creation testifies to this in a way that is not reasonably deniable, even by fallen men. And it sounds a whole lot like a passage that we know very well, doesn't it? Romans 1, 18 through 20. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature 
have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The Jews knew to expect a Messiah, but they rejected Christ. And so because of this, the apostles' preaching anticipated and answered that objection. But with the Gentiles, the anticipated objection was, how can we, as say the Lycaonians, be held accountable by a God who has never spoken to us? And the answer is, well, that's not your situation. Wasn't the situation that your ancestors were in either. God speaks to everybody in a way that is sufficient Note here, this is very important, God speaks to everybody in a way that is sufficient to render judgment against them. This is the nature of general revelation or natural revelation. But what Paul and Barnabas have been giving them is the kind of revelation that is necessary to save, which is the gospel. It is Christ crucified and risen on the third day on behalf of sinners. All right, so Paul here he gives a rousing speech designed to disabuse them of man worship in favor of God worship. No, there is one creator that's not this system of demigods and all of this stuff. We are certainly not demigods. I'm certainly not the king of the gods. He's not my messenger. Does this work? Do they walk away and leave the whole thing alone? Do they turn to Christ? No. Verses 18 and 19, even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering to sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Wow, that changed fast, didn't it? So Paul and Barnabas were unsuccessful in breaking the pagans of worshiping them, but the Jews were very successful, although to no good effect for Paul and Barnabas. And isn't this always how we treat idols when we are done with them? I think of a girl who really and truly idolizes a boy, and that boy does not return her affections. Does she just sort of move on, have neutral feelings about him afterwards? No, no. That's why we have the saying, hell's fury hath none like a woman scorned. Think about Christianity. Who are the most ardent, frothing-at-the-mouth atheists? Those who never professed faith in Jesus or those who once did. Now, what accounts for this? This animosity. Why do we go from passionate love to vehement hatred when it comes to our gods? Well, because it's the responsibility of a god to confer upon the ones worshiping it divine blessings. But in order to confer divine blessings, you must be divine. And that would-be boyfriend, he wasn't divine. And so he could not give her divine blessings. And when she figured this out, he didn't merely become to her yesterday's news. He was her betrayer. You were a god to me, and you were supposed to give me the good things that gods give. And you were unable to, and so now I hate you. And so it is with a so-called deconverted Christian, this person who was never actually one of us had a golden calf, and they called it Jesus. And the golden calf named Jesus was going to give them their heart's desire because that was his purpose. But then that loved one who they built their whole life upon, they fell sick, and they prayed to this golden calf, and they prayed to this golden calf, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed in earnest. They believed as no one had ever believed, but this false God did not give them what they wanted. And so they raged against him. God alone is God. 
God alone can, verse 17, give you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, and God alone has. And that is why we have been made his true worshipers never fall away. It's one of the reasons. And we didn't travel to Oz in search of a deity and then curtain was pulled back and we saw a silly little man emerge instead. But that's exactly how worship ends when it's directed at anyone but God through Christ. These people go from worshiping them to trying to kill them immediately. And this is another reason why we should prevent people from doing this to us. Because it's not going to last. And when it breaks bad, it's going to break real, real bad. And the greatest reason we shouldn't want this is because they're violating God's first commandment. But you also don't want to be on the receiving end of this when the tides change. Um, those of you who have been here for a while, you may remember a very long time ago I used to give people a series on the podcast station of sermons that I would re-preach from uh, antiquity, from times past. Do you recall this? Okay, well, I, I would try to go with men who were not as well-known. I had to do, of course, a couple of Spurgeons because um, you just do. But I would preach occasionally sermons from John Owen, re-preach, and I'd give the context and all that stuff. I made very clear that, that these were not mine. Um, but I found it beneficial to my soul to do so, and, and I um, have been marked in ministry by no man more so than Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I did not re-preach any of his because you can listen to his, actually. They're, they're all recorded. But he is the man who most influenced me. The man who most influenced him was a man named Robert Murray McShane. And so through him, I was turned on to Robert Murray McShane, and uh, I re-preached a sermon from him, and it piqued my interest in particular because it was an ordination sermon, a sermon that he had preached for a man who was entering into the ministry, just, I guess, graduated from seminary, and so this was his charge to this young man in light of the responsibility that he was taking on. And he said to him, and this is me very loosely paraphrasing, do not let yourself become an idol to these people. They will naturally do it, but the same who worship you today will tear you to pieces tomorrow. And he referenced our text right here. And I have always remembered it. And let this be remembered by you, mothers and fathers. In every aspect of your life, do you suppose that those children who grew to hate their parents, that they all come from parents who didn't attend to their needs? No, many of them come from parents who set themselves up as gods. And we are fickle. And our worship is fickle. You can't bear it. You can't support it. You can't keep that implicit covenant that is made with you. So don't allow it to be made with you. You know what you should look for in the relationships that you have with each other here? Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, people who will sincerely share your burdens, your joys. You can't have that if you try to make these people worshipers or if you set these people up as gods. You can neither give them what they need in that respect nor uh, can they receive it from you. You are not of the nature of the Constitution. And this sort of man worship will rob you of those genuine connections. Worship the Lord. He alone is worthy.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of your servants, for the clarity that we gain through this. Lord, every one of us has fallen into this trap to varying degrees. We have all become convinced of our own worth far beyond what is actually warranted. We have all set up others around us, good gifts that you've given us in our lives as saviors. Help us. Help us to fix our eyes on you, to make no man a God, to make no woman a God, and to refuse to be acknowledged as such. Soli Deo Gloria. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.